The Old Testament reading is taken from the book of Genesis, chapter 24, verses 34 to 38, 42 to 49, and 58 to the end. The marriage of Isaac and Rebekah. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become wealthy. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male and female slaves, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old, and he has given him all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, in whose land I live, but you shall go to my father's house, to my kindred, and get a wife for my son. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you will only make successful the way I am going. I am standing here by the spring of water. Let the young woman who comes out to draw, to whom I shall say, Please give me a little water from your jar to drink, and who will say to me, Drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, there was Rebecca coming out with her water jar on her shoulder. She went down to the spring and drew, and I said to her, Please let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, Drink, and I will also water your camels. So I drank, and she also watered the camels. Then I asked her, Whose daughter are you? She said, The daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arms. Then I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to obtain the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you will deal loyally and truly with my master, tell me. And if not, tell me, so that I may turn either to the right hand or to the left. And they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? She said, I will. So they sent away their sister Rebekah and her nurse, along with Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, May you, our sister, become thousands of myriads. May your offspring gain possession of the gates of your foes. Then Rebecca and her maids rose up, mounted the camels, and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebecca and went his way. Now Isaac had come from Beer-Lahai-Roy and was settled in the Negev. Isaac went out in the evening to walk in the field, and looking up, he saw camels coming. And Rebecca looked up, and when she saw Isaac, she slipped quickly from the camel and said to the servant, Who is the man over there? walking in the field to meet us. The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent. He took Rebekah and she became his wife and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Here ends the reading. The Gospel reading is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 11, verses 16 to 19 and 25 to 30. Glory to you, O Lord. 
But to what will I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We wailed and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. At that time, Jesus said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you that are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. good to be with you again. So a woman was in a supermarket shopping and she's following a grandfather and his really evidently badly behaved three-year-old grandson. It's really obvious to her that he really does have his hands full with this wild child and the child screaming for biscuits and sweets, you name it. And meanwhile, grandpa is working his way around the shop, going from aisle to aisle, very slowly and in a controlled voice saying, easy William, we won't be long, easy now, it's going to be okay. There's another outburst and she hears the grandpa calmly say, it's okay, William, just a couple more minutes. We'll be out of here soon. Hang on in there, boy. And then later at the checkout, the little terror's throwing items out the cart and grandpa's saying again in a controlled voice, William, William, relax, buddy, breathe. Don't go crazy, calm, calm. We'll be home in five minutes. Stay cool, William. She's a mum and she's really impressed. And when she gets outside loading the car, she sees the grandfather there loading his groceries into his car and the boy along with him. And she says to the elderly man, I'm sorry to intrude. I just want to say that you were really amazing in there, inside that little shop. Um, I don't know how you did it. That whole time you just kept calm and no matter how loud and disruptive the little monkey got, well, you just kept calmly saying it'll be okay. William's very lucky to have you as his grandpa. Oh, thanks, said the granddad. But actually, I'm William. The little monster's name's Brian. Kids, eh? A few years ago, I heard this quote. Children now love luxury. They have bad manners, contempt for authority. They show disrespect for elders and love chatter in place of exercise. Children are now tyrants, not the servants of their household. They no longer rise when elders enter the room. They contradict their parents, chatter before company, gobble up dainties at the table, cross their legs and tyrannise their teachers. Sounds familiar, yeah? Could be spoken by many parents or grandparents or perhaps anyone of adult years in these days. But it's actually attributed to Socrates from the 4th century BC. Although in reality, it's probably more like a collated summary of general complaints about youth by the ancient Greeks. 
But what it tells us is that in many ways, things don't change. People are people and kids have always been and will always be kids for good and for bad. And that challenge leveled by Jesus towards the generation of his time could just as easily be addressed to our own generation, a generation of people that can't seem to recognise or handle the truth that's right there in front of them and end up just acting like a bunch of kids. You see, they thought that John the Baptist was a demon and considered Jesus to be a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. It's a slur, of course, on his character, describing the low company that Jesus kept. But I suspect he also wore it as a badge or a label that he wore with pride. After all, as Jesus himself says in Mark 2, verse 17, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus is then a friend of sinners, which in these days of relentless bad news is great news for the world and for us. But for these highly judgmental religious critics, or Jesus sharply compares them to a bunch of kids, not the trusting or innocently favourable qualities of being childlike, but rather the foolish, immature, childish behaviour that they personify. It's, it's like they're oblivious, like kids preoccupied with mucking about, just playing games. The Messiah, the Holy One, the hope of Israel and of the world, the one they've been waiting for is right there in front of them, and yet they can't seem to see beyond their own prejudice and cynicism. Jesus knows who he is. He knows what he's called to and unashamedly stands secure in that knowledge in the force of really vicious accusation and finger pointing. Being misunderstood or labelled in ways that aren't fair, trying to limit who we really are, it's, it's really painful, isn't it? And we see Jesus' forceful rebuttal of those trying to stand against him. This is Jesus challenging the powerful elite, defending the oppressed, the voiceless, and their kind of thinking, their way of being, often born out of insecurity, actually, or a need to hold on to power, is all too frequently seen in our world today. Making assumptions about a person based on where they grew up, or what school they went to, how they dress, or what sort of accent they have, their gender, or as we've been recently reminded so clearly, and has been so evident over the centuries, the colour of a person's skin. It's dreadful, isn't it? And yet it's there, it's real. And Jesus is underlining the point that in order to really know someone, you need to spend time with them and learn who they really are, to see them, to know them. So what about you and me? Do you, do I, do we really know him? Do we know Jesus? Have we let him really know us? Have you let him really know you, the real you, the unpainted, unveneered, raw you? He wants that level of relationship, of friendship, of intimacy with you, if you and I will allow him. You see, for this crowd that Jesus is challenging, nothing actually seems to please them. They don't really want to know him or know about him. When John came with his message of deep repentance, they complained. And when Jesus came welcoming all and proclaiming God's abundant favour, well, they scorn him too. So what is it you're looking for? Jesus asked them. Except he knows the answer. It's not him. Well, perhaps yes to the power and the miracles. That might be good. But probably not if it threatens their monopoly of power. Yes, good moral rabbinical teaching and God's law honoured. 
but not this all-encompassing message of hope and freedom to the masses, to the great unwashed, and never, God forbid, if you might be telling me that I need to repent, to recognise my own weakness and fault, to humble myself, to change. It, it reminds me, as someone who grew up in a lovely Baptist church in Kent, of that old joke. How many Baptists does it take to change a light bulb? Change? Why do we get like that? Well, because to change is to lose something. To change can feel like dying. It's threatening. It's about surrender and yieldedness. Change isn't certain. It implies risk and probably loss. And that's true for every generation since time began. We fear losing that which we know, that which we've become accustomed to. And so perhaps we cling to it all the more fervently, even when it's to our detriment, often blindly. And that, of course, is one of the deepest challenges and greatest glories about life in Christ. You cannot truly follow him, the Good Shepherd, and expect to remain unchanged. The whole point of the gospel, of turning to Christ and knowing him as Lord, is to recognise your great need for transformation and change. It's a daily thing. God wanting to take us from one stage of glory to the next. It's perpetual change. And so the ones who were and are willing to embrace this good news and hopeful possibility are so often not the so-called self-appointed wise ones, but actually are the infants, the childlike, not childish, but childlike, who simply dare to believe that there before them is a redeemer, a king, a saviour who is Christ the Lord. He who came not to rule with a conquering rod of iron, but who served who washed the feet of the unworthy, who tended to the heart of the broken, and who spoke gently to those whose eyes were filled with shame. And to those who have ears to hear and hearts soft enough to yield, Jesus continues to make this staggering promise. To you who know your brokenness, who can admit to your need and hunger for God, who turn to him in Jesus, you will be fully known, understood and accepted. It's an invitation. It's a longing from God extended to all who are foolish enough to hear and believe so that all who are weary may come and find rest. In these days, I urge you to turn to him in greater measure and to know the depth and width and profound measure of his love for you. In increasing measure. The promise is there for us all. Those who are content and satisfied, well, they'll find little of value here perhaps. But to those who feel weak, who feel accused, whether by yourself or others, well, they'll find forgiveness and peace. To those who feel lonely or abandoned, they find friendship those who feel like they're a disappointment or feel disappointed, they will find relief. And to those who have been bruised and wounded, they will find healing. To those who feel misunderstood, they will be truly known, loved and accepted for who they are. So come to him, all you that are weary and are carrying heavy burdens and he will give you rest.
Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning to intercede for our world, our nation, and in particular our city. Psalm 91 verses 1 to 2. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Lord, thank you for being utterly trustworthy and dependable and the source of our safety and security. Due to your endless patience and loving kindness, we cry out to you in this time of crisis. Firstly, we bring before you our rulers, both temporal and spiritual. Thank you for the example of our gracious Queen. We pray for huge reserves of wisdom, understanding and imagination for our politicians as they try to resolve economic and social problems caused by the pandemic. Please help them to make wise decisions about how to ease lockdown, especially enabling children to return to school safely. We pray for the Archbishop of Canterbury, for bishops directing their dioceses, and for all clergy as they make decisions about opening churches for private prayer and to restart services. Lord, we want to reach out to people who know nothing about you but have questions about the disruption of their normal life and perhaps are struggling with grief and other emotions that are surfacing during this pandemic. Lord, please help us Christians to make a relevant contribution to the lives of the people that we meet. In line with last week's prayers, please prompt us to small acts of kindness which can make a difference. Heavenly Father, we pray for our city. With the cancellation of tourism for several months, there will be a huge shortfall in public finances. 
We pray for your heavenly wisdom for our counsellors in the management of the city, that money will be found for important services and not wasted on unnecessary matters. Please help our shopkeepers as they reopen for business and everyone involved in the tourist industry in their efforts to make Bath a safe and welcoming place for visitors. We ask for your blessing on the chaplaincy at the two local universities and in the hospital. Please bless the chaplains as they offer help and hope to students and patients and protect their physical, mental and spiritual health. We pray for all the people who are currently exploring Christianity on online Alpha courses. Please help them to find you and link them with believers who will encourage them in their faith. Father God, we commit to you, to your care, people known to us who are struggling with poor physical or mental health and ask for your healing. We pray for those who are haunted by fear, both in present circumstances and worry about the future. May they come to a place where they can trust you to provide for their needs and to soothe their fears. Lord, we know that you love us deeply. Please accept these prayers for the sake of your Son, our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.